welcome to Rimrock Church on Palm Sunday. Got a little palm in my microphone stand. Would you like to stand with us, even if you're home, and stand and sing to the Lord this morning? Wave your arms in the air. Praise is rising, hearts are turning to you. We long for you. Hope is stirring, hearts are yearning for you. We long for you. Cause when we see you, we find strength to face the day. And in your presence, all our fears are washed away. They're washed away. Hosanna, Hosanna. You are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. Hosanna, Hosanna. Come have your way among us. We welcome you. The sound of hearts returning to you. We turn to you in your kingdom, broken lives are new and when we see you we find strength to face the day yeah we need that come on and in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away Hosanna Hosanna you are the God who saves us Worthy of all our praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us, we welcome you here, Lord Jesus. All right, now think about if you were at that street in Jerusalem where Jesus is riding in on the donkey. People are laying leaves at his feet, even their robes, and they're singing to him. Let's sing that first verse again. We say, praise is rising, hearts are turning to you, and we turn to you. to face the day yes we do and in your presence all our fears are washed away are washed away lift it up Hosanna Hosanna you are the God who saves us worthy of all our praises Hosanna Everlasting God said, You are the everlasting God, the everlasting God. You do not think you won't grow weary. You're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings. 
Eagles. One more time, come on. You are the everlasting God, the everlasting God. You do not think that you won't go weary. You're the defender of the weak, and you comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like No, we're limited by space and time, or God isn't, and I'm just grateful that we have the technology, grateful that we have a, a all-present God, that no matter where you're at or what you are doing, if you're aligning yourself with God, you can engage in, in deep worship. So if you would join me in prayer as we uh, just get set on our service. Gracious God, we do thank you for making provision um, as deep of a level as sending your son Jesus uh, to pay for the penalty of our sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit's empowerment within our lives, uh, or technology and relationships and people that know how to use them. Uh, so we're grateful that we have uh, today and the opportunity to come before you, to be taught by you, uh, to bring you praise, adoration, and to just engage in worship, God. I pray that your spirit would animate Ben as he brings the message. We thank you so much for your lasting word. As we turn to it now, we ask your protection and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. And hey, welcome, everyone. And uh, we're, we're so excited to uh, praise God today on Palm Sunday. Jesus said, even if people didn't praise, the rocks would cry out. Mm. Isn't that amazing to think about? That's how worthy God is of our praise. But, you know, like many of you, uh, these are times that uh, we're trying to figure out what it looks like to live, what it looks like to praise God in these times. But it struck me that in the account in Luke 19 on Palm Sunday, you know, we always just focus on the celebration side. But it's interesting, if you keep reading that account, uh, while people are celebrating, Jesus is weeping. He's, he's lamenting. It says, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept over it. He lamented. And it says the reason he lamented is he saw a coming destruction. We know historically, 70 AD, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the Roman army. And Jesus saw that day was coming, and he, he wept, he lamented. And I, I think in this time of, of turmoil and uncertainty, it's okay to weep. It's okay to lament, because there is a curse on our world. And Jesus recognized that reality of that curse. And so much of the Bible uh, has prayers of lament, prayers of, of grief. But I think what, what strikes me is, as Jesus is weeping, he says, if only they had known on this day what would bring you peace. <laughs> And so we, we don't lament like other people because we have hope. We have peace in Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's my prayer for everyone who's watching uh, this this morning is that you would know the peace. This is the opportunity to turn our eyes, our hearts towards God and receive the peace that he has us. Even on a day of destruction, even on a day of calamity, we can trust God. We can have peace in him. Ben, as you talk about lamenting, I, I've heard it said that the difference between lamenting and complaining, where they can feel very similar um, as you're expressing yeah, yeah. sorrow, is like you just said, lamenting has a hope uh, in store in the yeah. future, and, and complaining typically doesn't have yeah. that in view. I love that distinction, and, that, and I think that's the biblical call, is, is there is a time to weep, right? We've, we're looking at it in Ecclesiastes. So uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. We've started this series, and I, I think this is a gift from God that he gave us Ecclesiastes for this time that we're living. It's, it's the right time to be in this word because I think God is speaking. He's working. He's moving in our world, and he's wanting to get our attention, and I think Ecclesiastes serves that purpose. It gets our attention about who God is. And so uh, in Ecclesiastes, as we've gone through this, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15 uh, this morning. And I want to just give you a quick recap that, that Ecclesiastes, and I think the NIV uh, does us a disservice by translating the word Habel as meaningless, because the reality is that word means breath. It means vapor. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes is about, is it's, it's revealing the reality that life is a 
breath. It's a vapor. We can't control it. We can't grasp it. We can't hold on to it. Um, what better illustration than the times we're living in? And I think all of us, if we're honest, realize uh, if we're if we're honest, realize that life can't be grasped. That it is temporary. It it doesn't um, it doesn't last. But sometimes there's things and circumstances in life that awaken us to that reality. And we're living in a time like that where everything we thought was permanent or would last all of a sudden is gone, right? And so we're realizing life is a vapor. Life is a breath. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And so that's, that's the point of Ecclesiastes is to wake us up to that reality. But as you go through chapter 1 and chapter 2, Solomon tries out all these different things that he thinks uh, somehow will give us life outside of God, right? He pursues knowledge and wisdom and pleasure, and he's looking for ways to, just like we do, to try to find happiness and joy in life. But everything he tries, he says, is like chasing the wind. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't last. And, and so the end of chapter 2 becomes this incredible pivot where for the first time we're introduced to God. So Chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, there's no mention of God. And in fact, a lot of people quote Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and I think it's ironic, they, they quote it as if, uh, as, as if it was supporting their worldview, whether it's nihilism, saying there is no meaning to life, or hedonism is just a pursuit of pleasure. But the irony is, really, Ecclesiastes is an apologetic. It's an inv invitation to the reality of God and how that brings ultimate joy in life. And that's uh, where Solomon is helping us see and reveal through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we can pursue all those other things, but at the end, there is no gain. And that's where we start up in verse 9. And so if you follow along in your Bible in verse 9, Solomon asks the same question he asked earlier in verse 3. What do workers gain from their toil? And if you go all the way to chapter 1, verse 3, he asked that same question. What do people gain in their labors? And so this is the contrast in Ecclesiastes, is life as gain or life as a gift. In chapter 2, Solomon introduced this idea of God and life being a gift. And he's going to build on that here in chapter 3. And so what do the wickers gain from their toil? One of the major things we can notice in Ecclesiastes is that there is this thing called the curse. And we really pretend, we try really hard to ignore a curse. In fact, we do everything in life to try to fix it up, control it, try to feel like we're in charge or we have some kind of uh, goodness in life outside of God. And we do this in so many different ways. But what Ecclesiastes does is it tries to pop our bubble. Mm. And we realize, whoa, there is a curse. There's something deeply wrong with this world. And so that's part of Solomon's uh, message here to us this morning is that the reality of the curse. In verse 10, it says, I have seen the burden of God, that the burden God has laid on the human race. And this is a reference to Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve have had this incredible relationship with God, but then they choose to disobey God, right? They choose to say, hey, we're going to go our own way. We're going to try our own thing. We're not going to listen to God. We're going to try to figure this out on our own, right? And so in that moment of disobedience and rebellion against God, and they're caught in that, and their shame and their guilt, they've run away from God, but then God comes to them. He finds them. He pursues them. And I love that, that God pursues them. But he tells them the consequence of their disobedience is a curse, the curse of sin. And he describes the curse not only as all of creation being frustrated, but even Adam and Eve's toil, their work, would be frustrated. He says to Adam, you, the work that as you plow the ground and what you sow, what you're going to get is weeds, right? <laughs> you're going to get thorns and thistles. And so this frustrating burden in life is what is referred to as the curse. And that's what Solomon's helping us see, is that if we live by gain, if we try to strive and work like Adam, we work the ground, we, we do all our things, and we strive and we work with all our energy, all our strength, the end result, Solomon says, is it's like chasing the wind. We don't get what we expect. I think one of the values of the book of Ecclesiastes, as I hear you unpacking kind of the setting, is it's so relatable. Yeah. It's, I mean, we all have felt kind of what Solomon is putting words to here exactly. as far as just the, the grind and the easy to slide into that, like exactly. purposelessness of your work or, or exactly. your day. Exactly. So that's so well said. So I... 
I'm not, I don't watch a lot of sports, but the one, so there's a few events I really like to watch, and one of them is the Summer Olympics. And uh, so I was disappointed, like many people, that it's not going to happen this summer, right? And, uh, but I was thinking about that, and, you know, you think about the work that the athletes put in, and uh, I was really impressed over the course of the last few Olympics of a guy named Michael Phelps, right? He's, he's like this ultimate gold medal winner, you know, he's excelled an incredible way in swimming. But as, as I've been kind of following his life a little bit and reading a little bit about him, uh, he's been a little open about some of the things he's experienced in life, right? And you think about someone who's worked harder than almost anyone else, right? I mean, that guy has sacrificed and worked and strived to be the very best, the very top, right? But it's interesting, I, I, I was reading how at the end of the 2012 Olympics, he had won multiple gold medals, and he was sitting in his room alone, and he didn't eat or sleep for many days, and he was trying to medicate with drugs and alcohol. He, he just hit total bottom. And if you think about the glory of winning that gold medal and everything that went into it, but this is what he said. He said, this is what he, he said, I did not want to be in the sport anymore. I did not want to be alive anymore. And so I think this is what Ecclesiastes is talking about. It's that burden of the curse that even our best effort, even the very best that we can do doesn't ultimately bring joy or satisfaction. I, I've since read that, you know, Michael Phelps, he's doing a lot better now. He's gained some perspective in his life. But it, I think if, if he's achieved the very top and that doesn't give him the happiness and joy, then what, what good can we do in our striving, right, as we try to do these, pursue these other things? And so I think this is the contrast we're going to see in these passages. I just want to turn really quick to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, because I think Jesus uh, helps us see what Solomon is ultimately talking and pointing us to is this reality that joy and happiness cannot be earned. And a relationship with God cannot be earned. Nothing good in life can ultimately be earned in our own strength. And so that's what Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And so what this is revealing is that the the salvation, the joy, the happiness that we long for cannot be achieved through our effort, through our striving. Rather, it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's powerful. And I think that's what Solomon is, is pointing us to in Ecclesiastes. He's pointing us to this reality that workers, people cannot gain from their labor, from their toil, from their striving. And that is the, that's the, the burden of the curse, right? Is that we want to get ahead. We want to gain, but we can't. We're stuck in this reality. And so what does God do? He gifts us with grace. Look, read with me as we keep going in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so this is, this is the good news now. Uh, we're, we're getting the good news. So there's this reality of the curse, but God is working. In the midst of the curse, God is working. He's revealing himself. And this is what he says in verse 11. He's making everything beautiful in its time. Um, a few weeks ago, Bill talked about time and how there's a time for everything, right? And there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. We are in time. We can't escape time and the seasons of life. And we, str we fight against that sometimes. And I think the invitation in Ecclesiastes is to accept that reality that we're stuck in time. But God is not. He is outside of time. He is not stuck in the curse like we are. He's outside of it. And this is what this is pointing to, is that God is good. And so sometimes we think about God, not like us, outside of time and His sovereignty. And sometimes we, we think of that in a negative light. But the Bible reveals it in a good light. Because we believe God is good because the Bible reveals the character of God. And the character of God is what we see in verse 11. He makes everything beautiful. And another way of looking at this word beautiful is everything good in its time. And so it's not just an aesthetic beauty, although I think that's part of it. It's an ultimate true beauty that reflects an ultimate goodness. And that is what God is doing. One of the things I love about the stories in the Bible is they reveal the character of God. And they reveal that God is a redeeming God. We see over and over in the Bible that uh, people get themselves in messes. Uh, last night, Boomer talked about uh, Noah and the ark, and uh, 
everyone was doing their own thing and they were making a mess of the world. There was violence, there was all kinds of evil things going on. And yet God took this ark and he made room for everyone, right? And so he made salvation, he made goodness, and he redeems a terrible situation. And we see that over and over, whether it's Noah or Moses and the Israelites, slaves in Egypt, yet God redeems this incredible, difficult trial that the people of Israel are going through, and he brings them out of Egypt as free people, right? He frees them. He frees the slaves. And we see that same story over and over. I think of Jonah, right? We, we taught on Jonah, and, and there's this terrible uh, judgment coming, yet God is gracious, and he's slow to anger and abounding in love, and he sends Jonah, and he redeems the city of Nineveh. And so we see that same story over and over and over in the Bible, where where you see the mess, but then you see God redeeming. So could, you, I mean, in some ways, when you, you step back to Genesis a minute ago, and it's um, God saying, because you didn't trust me, there are bad times, but yet God is redeeming yeah. those times. He's redeeming yeah. the work that yeah. we have started. Exactly. And, and he's making it beautiful. So I, I love this picture in the Psalms where it says it's from ashes to beauty, mm. right? And so it, it's so true. It's, it's that story of God. He's the redeeming God. And we see that throughout the Bible. That's the Bible's story. I think where we see this, uh, I mean, we see it in creation itself. And I, I've been inter interested to read uh, scientists as they kind of discover more of, of how this world works and is put together. One of the things they can explain is beauty, right? Because there's so much uh, that you would think if it was just survival, it would just be efficient. But there's so much in creation that isn't efficient. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it's just gorgeous to admire and to, to look at. And so that reflects something about God, right? And he's doing that not only in all of creation, he's doing it in us. He's put that seed of the reality that God is making everything beautiful, and it's in his time, not our time. And that's the frustration, I think, sometimes. Um, and I think where all these stories of the Bible culminate is what we're get going into this week. We call this Passion Week because Jesus came for a purpose, and it was to redeem, to make, bring good, to bring beauty out of the curse in this world. And so this whole week, as we think about Jesus and why he came on this earth and the fact that this week is what we call Holy Week, where he is preparing to go to the cross. And we think about that moment uh, where he's uh, preparing to go to the cross, and he's in the garden. And I think this is, the, this is like the culmination of all the stories because Jesus is in anguish, right? He's feeling the weight of the curse upon his shoulders. He, he's, he's lamenting this reality of a world that's gone astray, that's gone totally wrong, it's broken. There's sickness, there's death, there's a wrong, there's oppression. All these things that we experience every day that God never intended, but, but we've chosen because of sinfulness. And Jesus feels the weight of all of that. And it says in the garden that he's there and he's praying. And I love how uh, he, he does this because as he's praying, he says, Father. He says, Father. And I think that's beautiful because God reveals who God is as a good father, right? He's loving and he's uh, kind and he's saving and he's redeeming. He's, he's fixing. He's healing. And he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so I think this is where Solomon is going in, in Ecclesiastes. He's helping us see what I think Jesus ultimately reveals to us is in facing the curse and the reality of the curse and facing death and the ugliness of the cross. He came to this point if he was going to trust his father. And I think this is what Solomon is saying in verse 12. He says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may, be, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in a toil. This is the gift of God. Think about that in light of Ephesians 2, the grace of God, the gift of God. Now, verse 12 sometimes has been used wrongly, and I want to read this again, but think about it, personalize it, and I want you to read it again and put your name in it, right? I know there's nothing better than for Nick or Ben to be happy and to do good while they live, that Nick and Ben may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their work because this is the gift of God. So put, put your name in there. And then you see that this verse isn't a verse of despair. It's a verse of hope <laughs> because God is redeeming God because he's making everything beautiful. He changes how we 
go through life. It's no longer a burden of despair, but there's a gift of hope to go through this life. <laughs> you think about, I've, I've heard before, just the idea of God reversing the curse. Yeah. And though incompletion, that's certainly a process. And I think we get little, mm-hmm. little hints here of Absolutely. eternity in our hearts yes. and recognizing the, the reverse first had to, had to start with, with, with my dark heart. And yes. once Christ has, has redeemed that, um, it makes a world of difference how I view work and exactly. food and drink and anything exactly. when you know it's, it's in process of being reversed and mm-hmm. being made whole. Absolutely. And I love that. And I love that it's a process, right? And so, but I think the first step in that process is, is repentance. Uh, that was the message Jesus preached. And I think that's the, the real issue in Ecclesiastes is like Solomon, he tried everything. He tried to strive. He tried to work. He tried to pursue pleasure and work and all these things outside of God. But repentance is realizing that that's not the way. <laughs> and it's realizing that God is trustworthy and we can trust him. And that's what the invitation, I think, here is to trust in God's sovereignty and his plan because we can't understand everything. There's things outside of our control, outside of what we can understand or explain. And that's what I think we need to come to grips with is that we're not God, but God is God. He's outside of time. He's sovereign and he's good. And because of that, we can receive the gift of God, the grace of God to find joy in this life. And I think that's the the challenge is for us to realize who God is, and to trust him. And that's what Jesus did in the garden. He trusted his father. He was facing the curse, and he said, I I don't want to go through this, but I'm going to do what you want, God, not what I want. And that's what I think is so cool about God's sovereignty. It's actually about freedom. If you think about it, sovereignty has to do with power, but it also has to do with freedom, because God is God, (laughs) and he's free to do what he knows best. And because he is sovereign, and because he's free, He's chosen in love to give us freedom. He's given us the ability to choose, to choose him or choose life in him or outside of him. He's given us that choice. Just as he gave it to Adam and Eve, he gives it to us. He doesn't force us, but he invites us to trust him. That's the ultimate invitation. Every story in the Bible, every character, what did they get to as they faced the curse? They got to this point, Moses, Noah, David. Are you going to trust God? And that's where Jesus got in the garden. He got to that point of absolute trust, absolute dependence on his Father. And I think that's the invitation for us. Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God, we must be like a child. And so it's not having all the answers. It's not knowing everything. It's trust. Because a child trusts his, a good parent. You think about when you're trying to instruct a child and you know they, they don't have the full picture or the understanding that you do, and you're asking them to trust, I think, even with God and how he relates to me, I, I wonder if you strip all that back. Yeah. And his question is, Nick, do you believe I love you? Yeah, that's it. And if, if, that's, if I believe that, then I, yeah. you enter into trust. And, and we long for our kids to yeah. just, you know I love you. Exactly. And so I'm not, I'm not going to do anything against that. Exactly. Hmm. I love that. And, and, and it's that key of God is love. He is good. And that invitation to trust. I I think about my youngest son. Uh, He's getting a little big now to do this, but he would jump on the trampoline and he said, Dad, come over here. And I'd go over there and he would just launch himself off the trampoline, not even hesitating for a moment, knowing that I would catch him, right? That's trust. So Dave Gibson says, part of growing in this world, and he's he's talking about Ecclesiastes, is learning to grow small. And that's that's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Instead of us getting big and gaining, we grow small because God intends us to be like children who trust their parents who know best. The relationship of trust is built on the character of the parent. If the parents are good and wise, the child has nothing to fear. And that is what Jesus is revealing to us in the garden. He says, Father, you're good. You know best, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to face this curse, and I'm going to trust you that your will is good. You're making everything beautiful in your time. And so verse, um, if we understand verse 14 and 15, we see this as an invitation to grace and an invitation to trust. And this is what it ends with in verse 14 and 15. And I know everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken to it. So God is sovereign. He's the creator. He's the maker of everything. He's over everything. God does it so that people will fear him. 
And I think about that word fear. I think that's an interesting word to use here, but I think it's an important word. So I think there's three things that I, I think God is inviting us to consider this morning. And I want you to, to really think about this. Have you accepted the reality that God is sovereign and that he is good? Do you see him as father, as a good father? Second, have you come to the place where Solomon came of understanding that life is about gift? It's about grace. It's not about gain or working or striving. And that if you understand the grace of God, you can understand the joy of God. It says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. So where there's grace, there's joy. Where there's gift, there's joy. And so Jesus lived in joy. He didn't live in, in, in agony or despair. He lived in joy. He spent time in parties. He spent time enjoying the good gifts of God. And third, can we hold the gifts of God with an open hand? Or are we trying to hold on to it, grasp it like breath or wind? And this is where Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. When we trust him, then we can be satisfied with everything that he's given us and everything that life brings, whether it's a time to be born or time to die, a time to embrace or a time not to embrace, right, that we're living in now. Yeah. Either way, whatever happens, we can have this joy that cannot be taken away from us. And so lo the satisfaction lodges in my heart, and I understand and I accept the boundaries of creaturely existence and accept that the seasons of life come from God's good and wise hands. We can trust and accept God. And so what's the ultimate invitation here in verse 15? He says, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been, for, has been before, and God will call the past into account. So think about this idea of fear. God does all this so that people will fear him. And I've, uh, I've been open that um, fear has been something I've struggled with in, in my life, and, and I think a lot of us do struggle with fear. I think it's a, it can be a very terrible part of the curse. But I think the invitation here is to see fear from a different perspective. And the story that's helped me understand this is the story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples as they're going across the lake. Because um, as they're going across the lake, Jesus is sleeping. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's outside of time. <laughs> and a storm comes up. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And the disciples are freaking out. And these are, these are tough guys. These are fishermen. And they're in the boat. And the storm is coming. And it says they're afraid. They're afraid. This is the fear of the curse. But in that moment, as they're afraid, they're screaming, they're saying, Jesus, wake up, get up, because we're going to die. <laughs> the reality of death, right? The bubble had been popped. Maybe today your bubble's been popped, and you're realizing that life isn't as secure as you thought. But here's the key in that story. Jesus is in the boat with them. He's sovereign. He's in control. He wakes up, and he says, why are you afraid? He says, don't be afraid. And then he looked at the wind and the waves, and he says, stop, be still. And he showed his power in that moment. But here's the key. The disciples says, then they were really terrified. <laughs> but you see, their fear changed. The fear went from the wind and the waves to a fear of God. This is what Solomon ultimately invites us to and what I think Ecclesiastes is all about. It's about worship. It's about fear of God. And so the issue is, do we have a misplaced fear? Are we fearing the wrong thing? Because if we understand like the disciples, who was in the boat with them, and that he is the one who created the wind and the waves and is in control of everything, and he's good, and he was ultimately going to protect them and give them life, then they had nothing to fear from the waves and the wind, but they were terrified at the power of Jesus, right? And that is what Solomon, I think, is inviting us to do, is to realize that we're in that boat. We're in a storm. The curse is real. Death is a real thing. But Jesus is in the boat with us, and he is more powerful than death itself. He has overcome the curse. And if he has overcome the curse, then he is the one that we are to ultimately fear, the ultimately to give reverence in our worship and our lives and our love towards and everything towards. Um, and so that, I believe, is the invitation. Would you join us in singing this song, and then we're going to come to the table to remember what Jesus has given to us on the cross.
moment that I wake up till I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice You led me through the fire In the darkest night You are close like no other I've known you as a father I've known you as a friend And I have lived in the goodness of God Yes, I have That again, come on. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. I just pray that you're able to sing that this morning, that, that you know that God is running after you, that he loves you and that he is good and that you can look back and say, God has been faithful in my life. And, and I, I just want you to know this morning is uh, that none of us can bear the curse on our own. We can't. It's too big of a burden to bear. But Jesus came for that purpose, is to bear the curse for us. <laughs> 
And that is the good news. That is the gift of God. That is the gift of grace that we can celebrate this morning. And I, I hope that if you're home by yourself, or maybe you're with your family, or maybe you're gathered with a few other friends, that um, if you have some bread or, or any kind of juice, it doesn't have to be grape juice, it's okay. <laughs> there, we're, there, there's no rules here in the sense, but this, uh, this supper is a reminder of the gift of God, that we can't bear this curse alone, that God provided what we could not do on our own, that God gave us a gift, and it's the gift of breaking the curse. It's a gift of forgiveness of our sins. It's a gift of not being bound by fear anymore, but having the hope and the joy of God. And I think that's the, the beautiful thing here, is that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I believe Ecclesiastes is ultimately about joy. It's an invitation to joy. And I think God's ultimate goal is an invitation to joy in our lives. You think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, <laughs> peace, patience, kindness, all those things that God wants to do, and he wants to make it a reality in our lives. And so Jesus uh, desired to have this meal, and, and, uh, and that's what I think we just sang, is God desires you. He desires a relationship with you. He desires to be in the boat with you in the storm. <laughs> he didn't promise to take all storms away. He, he, he let his disciples go through storms, and he's letting us go through a terrible storm right now uh, in our lives, but Jesus is with us, and he's using this in our lives to help us see that he is good, and that he's redeeming, and he's making everything beautiful. And so if you take your bread, I'm going to read out of here, and I'd invite you to take this uh, with us uh, as we remember why Jesus came, and what he is doing, and the purpose, and the meaning he's giving to our lives right now. He says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And this is what he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There is a future hope. <laughs> God's not going to leave this world under this terrible curse. He's, he's saving us from it. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so I'd invite you to take and drink and remember the covenant. We're now going to enter into a time of reflection and prayer, and so I've invited Nick to, uh, to kind of guide us, and, and I invite you to do this with those who are, or you can do it by yourself or with anyone you're with this morning. Yeah, one of our desires, even though we're not geographically together, and I think that's partly why Jesus gives us very tangible things um, to remember uh, deep realities, and that's to engage in what he's doing. And so whether you're alone or whether you're with people, like Ben said, we want to, we're just going to throw up some slides on the screen to give you prayer points. Uh, first one, we're going we're gonna to declare God as Redeemer. And so whether, we're just going to take one minute for each of these, and we'll have three different slides, and so it'll be about three minutes total. And so if you pray by yourself, if you're with people, um, whoever wants to pray during that time, and then we'll pop up the next slide after one minute. So uh, spend some time just posturing your heart and, and going before God who hears you and who sees you.
Well, Ben, thank you so much for uh, just leading us into God's Word and, and specifically into His heart and just the, the great reminders and, and the revelation of the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of, of, of trial, there's, there's joy to be had. Uh, let me pray uh, for you and with you. Living God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness as we have discussed, as we have read, as we have sung. And may you, Holy Spirit, bring revelation to us of that faithfulness. May we see it and acknowledge it. May we walk in it. I pray that you would instruct and teach us and, and help us know the, the magnitude of uh, our sin and the lack of resources that we have to bring gain to ourselves. Uh, but I do pray that we would be humble enough and wise enough to take you up on your gift, that you have done all that is needed to um, invite us into your holiness and invite us into your gain, that we now have lasting purpose and value. And so may we fear God and nothing else. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're sitting at home and sing a song with a Hannah? It's going to lead us in this. And all of you is more than enough for all of me.
And may the God of all peace and comfort bring both of those experiences deep into your heart, no matter what's in front of you or what's behind you. God bless.